Hello and welcome to The Good, The Bad and The Arty. Uh, my name is Tabish Khan and I'm an art critic. And my name is Anna Gammons, I'm an artist and broadcaster. And in today's episode we're going to be talking about what it's like to be an artist. How does the creative process work? How, what do artists do all day and how do they work with galleries? Thankfully, we have an artist with us and Anna will be taking us through the life and times of being an artist. We hope you enjoy this episode. A very interesting topic. I'm very happy to share my experience. Obviously, my experience is not going to be the same as everyone else's experience, but I can add to the conversation, hopefully, give an insight. And I think people want to know what it's like being an artist. I mean, and I think people got these... Possibly Hollywood has told us this myth of this, like this person just painting up in a loft somewhere, you know, just <laughs> creating work and an explosion of paint, and suddenly they're a success, and that's how it works. And <laughs> and I think it'd be really interesting to know um, what do artists do all day, and what are the many faces of being an artist. But I think it's best to start with sort of in your case, Anna. Obviously, everyone's story is going to be different who is an artist, but how did you get here and how did you become an artist and how have you become a successful artist who is a full-time artist Mm. as opposed to being someone who has another job to make ends meet I think it's really important for people to know that a lot of artists do have other jobs to pay the bills because they can't make it from work and in fact one of the biggest marks of success for an artist is being able to go full-time which is what you have achieved Anna so let's hear your story so a little bit about what I do, you know, I've been I've been painting professionally for 12 years. I am signed by the biggest global gallery group in the world. And yeah, it's it's kind of edges on the side of more commercial art. Um, but I'm an abstract painter, um, abstract and landscape painter, I would say. I'm in oils. So I also do other mediums as well. I do some sketching. And yeah, I am full time and I've been full time as an artist since... Um, 2014, 13, 13. <laughs> God, I can remember. Uh, yeah, so just over 12 years. I've also worked with broadcasting companies um, like the BBC, Residence FM, and organisations such as Sotheby's, The Tate and The Barbican, where I do speak about, I speak about art, I speak about my practice. And yeah, it's a fantastic job. I'm very, very fortunate. And, uh, and yeah, I'm really excited to tell you a bit more about my personal journey into art and what it is exactly that I do because I think being an artist is kind of a mysterious sometimes uh, profession a bit like being an art critic we already covered that so uh yes so yeah ask away tab I'm happy to answer anything excellent so how did it start when where, where did you start and how did you become an artist and how were you drawn to art my mum is an artist and I was always surrounded by art growing up and yeah, I just sort of didn't think it was a, I guess, a realistic career path. I was worried about making money. I didn't know a lot of people in the art world apart from my mum. And I went to the University of York to study history and I was working in a bar and I just decided after my first year of working in a bar, I was like, I think I can try and sell my own artwork, um, which is a quite a bold move, I think, for a 19 year old to think, or 18, I actually was 18 at the time, um, to think that I could sell my own art, but it was always been something that I was very good at school. I knew instinctively what gave things commercial appeal and what people wanted in their houses, what people liked to buy. I think partly based on you know what my mum was doing, but also just partly that I could tell what had relatable qualities. And that's what I wanted to try and emulate in my work. So I went to 
a couple of three galleries in York. And as I was studying, I was I was I had to always have a job to pay for my degree. So I went into three galleries and I said um, the ballsiest thing I think I've ever said in my entire life, which was I went into a gallery and, you know, we were talking in our other episode about it being quite an intimidating space. And I, little 18 year old me, kind of naively walked up with a portfolio of my work and I said to the gallery manager, um, I think you should stock my work in your gallery. I think it'd be perfect for your gallery. They kind of looked me up and down and said, you've got two minutes to impress me. And I went, I only need one. Uh, yeah, incredibly ballsy, probably ballsier than I am now. But yeah, and, and it seemed to work. They loved the work and it sold in the first exhibition that they had. And I did that with three other galleries on the same day. The same day I'd gone to that gallery, they all took my work. It sold everywhere. And I just thought, hmm, there's something in this. Then they they had a gallery, an art gallery on the University of York, but it wasn't for students to exhibit. Students could work in the gallery, but they didn't exhibit there. Um, until I came along and said, you should have my work. And I was the first ever student to have an exhibition at the gallery on campus. Word got around that I was the kind of York University artist. People started commissioning me. I started making money. And then the University of York, who had its history department, had its 50 year anniversary. And they commissioned me. Uh, my my tutor, in fact, my history tutor, who I sat through many um, hours of uh dissertation meetings had commissioned me a 10 foot painting for the history department to celebrate its 50 year anniversary so you can see that online if you google it but it's it was a massive massive work of art of of york um yeah and then i gained a lot of press attention and i then applied to work for the gallery group that i am now working with so de montford fine art and um clarendon galleries sure most people know who they are if you you know work in art and if you don't then you probably have one in your nearby town because <laughs> they are everywhere um so yeah and that's how I got into art and then it really snowballed from there and was your work very different back then than it is today yeah it was really I think I, I took a few years to sort of find my style and I and I I think um looking back I always felt a lot of pressure to be commercial immediately and and paint things that people liked I think I had my experimentation period when I was doing my A-level and I really sort of got to grips with different mediums. I'd always used different mediums my whole life and I'd loved using them. My style evolved into oil, the oil paintings that it is now and really bright, colourful, textural pieces, which is so me and it's such an authentic style for me and it happens to be commercial too. So that's really, really win-win for me. One thing that people often wonder is what do artists do? Like, what does a typical day look like? And how much time do you actually spend creating work versus all the other things around the creative process itself? Yeah, that's a great question. And and of course, it's different for everybody. I think I'm really, really fortunate that a lot of the jobs that I would have done if I was not working with the gallery, the gallery helps me with. So I'm talking about things like your PR and your client relations and your exhibitions and all things like that, that you would have to do yourself. I'm really, really fortunate that my gallery, um, we work together and we do that. So that is a lot of time that would normally go on admin things. I actually get to paint more, which is so, so good. But as an artist, you really are doing a million different things. You're almost like your own little business. I think you also described it as that as well, which you are because you're doing your admin, you're doing your marketing, you're doing client relationships, you're, um, you know, you're you're a little corporation unto yourself. And then if you've got time, you get to create. So it's it's a lot of doing a lot of different things and learning how to do all those different jobs, and it's difficult. But 
for me personally, I, I like to look at what of my work is selling. You know, I work in a commercial gallery, so I like to know how I'm doing um, and, you know, what kind of things people are enjoying at the moment. And I then look at kind of things I've done in the past. I'm very inspired by my own past works as well as other people's works. And um, I mean, I can be inspired by loads of different things, but then I will sort of plan out what I think my week is going to look like, how many different pieces I want to work on, what kind of colour schemes I want to use. Um, and then I will be creating most of the day. That is the majority of my day. If I'm not doing something to do with broadcasting or if I'm not at an event and there's, you know, I've done events abroad, I've done events on cruise ships. I am fortunate enough, I get to do a lot of events around the country and that is so exciting. But yeah, most of my day is creating, which is abs- an absolute privilege and I love it. And I'm very lucky that I get to be able to do that. Excellent. And do you do you almost treat it like a nine to fives and these are my studio hours and once I'm done then I'm stopped painting? Yeah, I do because I think that so so a lot of people say, Oh, you know, you can work whenever you want to work. And that's true, but if you want a social life and if I want to see my partner, then that means I try and stick to I have to stick to hours that most people work. So I will usually be in the studio before nine. Um and I'm fortunate enough, I now have a studio where I live. So that is my, cut my commute time down <laughs> exponentially. Uh, so I get to work uh, from home and, and yeah, and then I try and end up being done, you know, in a reasonable work day. But it, it's very hard to be creative, I think, for some people in a set time frame. So, you know, you sit down, and you're like, right, you need to be creative from nine to five. And that isn't a lot how a lot of people's brains work. Fortunately, I have found I put systems in place that really work for me so that when I sit down in my studio, that creative block just isn't there anymore. I know what sort of things I'll be inspired by. And yeah, sometimes it takes a, like an hour or two to kind of get into it. But I've sort of limited the creative restrictions I would have um, to really maximise my time working. So you don't get anything like, I don't know how to call it, would I call it painter's block as opposed to writer's block? <laughs> yeah, I guess you would, yeah. Yeah, no, I don't de- no, I definitely do. I haven't I haven't um I'm I'm certainly not immune to that by any standards, but I know what I need to get my brain into the mode to create. So I have figured that out and now I sort of have a strategies so that if I do feel uninspired, then I can, you know, do my best to pull myself out of that. Mm, do you mind sharing what some of those strategies are? The Impressionists just are, for me, so inspiring. Their use of colour, their use of texture, their use of light, um, even their subject matters and their technique and style. I've just always found it lights something up in my brain. So I will use their works to inspire me, to influence me. And often or not, it's it's like a, a dialogue between me and what I'm seeing. I start to think, God, I'd really love to be able to create that. That makes me excited to think about those colours together. Colour is a real influence for me too. So um, if I see certain colours together, that will really get me interested in, you know, how I can then start to play around with that. Yeah. And is there sort of like a routine? Is there like music that's listened to or stuff that's playing? Or is it like very much phones away and focus on the paint and just get into the flow state? Yeah, the flow state's really interesting. And I think a lot of artists, that is an ideal place to be where you don't even realise what the time is because you are just having a ball and, and enjoying what you're doing and really immersed in it. And I think that is such a wonderful space to be in. I do listen to music. I do listen to podcasts, a lot of podcasts. um, And I find that I can absorb information while I'm painting as long as if I can get into that instinctual way of painting where it just becomes an extension of 
me rather than a kind of more cerebral exercise, if that makes sense. I, I, I think the two, I can, I can learn with my intellectual brain and I can paint with my creative brain at the same time, providing that I am sure on what I'm trying to do. And that sounds a bit cryptic, but I think if I know what kind of colours I'm using and I know where my brain's going, then I can let it do its thing and it doesn't require me to constantly supervise that process. If I'm really struggling with some sort of colours don't make sense to me or it doesn't look quite right or I'm, you know, things aren't quite as harmonious as I'd like them to be, then I will have to pause the music, pause the, po- pause the podcast and really concentrate in the same way that I do when I have to write something or I have to um, revise or, you know, whatever it is I've done in the past to, that it requires all of my f- focus and concentration, which is quite difficult for me, but... You know, we get that. <laughs> and the famous question that's always asked for abstract painters is, how do you know when a work is finished? I moved into abstract art because, you know, it, it's not really a literal way of painting. It relies much more on instinctive process. You know, the colours, the textures, the composition, the balance all work to to construct a painting, to give a painting composition, to give it harmony. And so instead of, you know, the way I explain it to people is instead of, let's say you're painting something literal, like a house in the background and there's a tree in the foreground, that painting will probably operate in a similar way to other paintings in that it might use the rule of thirds. You need it to balance the composition, the harmony, it all needs to kind of work together as a painting, as a whole. And and the thing that's drawing your eye to certain areas will probably be the subject matter because our brain sees a house, knows it's a house and fixates on the house. Likewise with the tree. And so with abstract, because they aren't necessarily things that we recognise as things like shoes, books, objects, whatever it is, it's actually the colours and the compositions and the textures that give balance and harmony in our brain. They're doing the same thing as objects are doing, but we are processing them as making sense in our heads. And so that's a that's a really difficult thing to do. And it's a difficult thing to know when it's done. And actually, I think a lot of people say, oh, you know, abstract art is actually much more easy because you're not painting a thing. It's not, it doesn't look like it's supposed to, or it's not literal. I actually disagree. I think I'm able to deconstruct a piece of art and create something abstract that still works, quote unquote, by knowing how a more literal, more representational piece of art works because I know what elements make something work, I can then transition that to abstract art. And that's how I know it's finished. When all the colours balance, the composition balances and the texture, which in itself is a compositional element, works as well. I think one question that's often asked by a lot of people is also around the price of artwork. Mm. So it'd be really helpful to explain the price behind an artwork and what actually goes into it. So like, if you're paying... £5,000 for a painting, what are you actually paying for? Because obviously there's things like VAT and material costs and labour, etc. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there, there's so much that goes into it. And and also, I think when people say, you know, how long does it take to do a painting? It's the same thing with what are you actually buying? Well, the answer is that, you know, you, yeah, okay, it could have taken you seven, eight, nine, ten hours to do a painting, but actually, and, and often longer, by the way, but it's that it's the time it's taken you to to really hone your skills. It's the time it takes for you to get to the point where you are skilled enough to create work like that. Um, and so what you're doing uh, if you're buying art is you're investing in that person's career progression and the time it's taken them to get from A to B, which is often hours and hours and hours and hours, you know, 10,000 hours to become an expert in something, you know, to be a professional artist. You've banked so many hours of painting. You've, you've spent so much on, you know, paints and 
you spent so much time trying to get yourself, you know, the contacts and the admin and all of those things. And so actually, it's not just the physical painting, you're, you're buying something that a person's produced in, at a point in their career. And, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's exactly the same as, as asking, you know, how long did a painting take? Well, yeah, okay, this particular painting from start to finish took this time, but actually to get to this point, it's taken me years. So it's, it's a really, really intangible thing. But so I work with my gallery to price things. And that is often you know, dictated by the market and, you know, what where I sit in the market and where my style of work is in the market. Um, and I think every different artist will have their own position in the market. You know, I work for galleries, so obviously the gallery, you know, has has their own costs and things associated. You know, there's a commission cost, things like that. If you do work with the galleries, they will always take commission just because they've got overheads too. And so you really need to think about that as well when you're an artist. But in terms of how do you price an artwork, I mean, there's there's so many good blogs on this as well, which mm. I looked at myself when I was working for myself, you know, early days. And I, I, presumably they've only gotten better now. But yeah, it, it's really dependent on your name. You know, who, who endorses you? What galleries you're in? What mediums you're working in? Who do you resonate with style-wise? looking at research, talking to other artists, you know, where does your artwork sit in the market? You can compare it to artists with similar styles, you know, working in similar mediums, you know, with a similar amount of experience. Maybe they've, you know, you've been to the same university, you've both studied art together and your starting price might be similar to their starting price, as well as where you're selling in the world as well. That's a huge part. And if you are in galleries and things like that as well, but also make sure you have an hourly wage. Don't underprice yourself. And actually, underpricing yourself can be as dangerous as overpricing yourself because with overpricing yeah okay you can drive away people that aren't really looking to really spend a lot of their money on art but at the same time underpricing yourself is dangerous because what you're saying is this is how what my value is and if you underprice yourself that can be really dangerous too i'm sure you you've had this with other artists right have you ever been to an exhibition where you've been like god that is so underpriced or so overpriced i've bought a lot of artworks by artists who i thought they're underpriced and they should really be charging more and then you also see things that are overpriced. But I think it's really important that artists generally progress through their career. It's a bit like mm. earning a salary in a job that it's easy to keep earning more, but to earn less feels a bit, almost feels like a wrong step. And therefore artists need to price in a way that their prices can keep going up throughout the length of their career rather than sort of go up and come back down. Mm. I think you also talked about a really interesting element of sort of the other costs that are involved. And I think that's something that people don't always appreciate, that when you're mm. buying a £5,000 painting, for example, well, 20% of that is VAT, so that's really down to £4,000. Right. Then you've got the gallery covering their costs, which can almost take like half of that or more, maybe even more. Then for the artists themselves, they've got the paint and the canvases and the materials. That and are the also studio cost. rent as well, exactly. Studio yeah. rent. And then if you think about it, the hourly wage, even when you buy a £5,000 painting for, for an artist, may even be as low as like minimum wage or less. Of course, yeah, depending on how long it's taken them to do that artwork. Yeah, exactly. I think one of the things to say as well is, you know, size and medium are important too. Like oil paints are very, very expensive. Um, they can be. And size as well, like if you're doing like a really big, you know, piece of artwork, presumably that's taking you longer. That's also something worth, you know, and it will be more impactful in someone's house. So you can think about, you know, the impact that artwork will have, you know, as opposed to a smaller painting. It doesn't always work like that, but, it, you know, it's a way to look at it. And addition size, if you're doing a print and it's not an original piece, how many are you making of that of that print? You know, is it an edition uh, that's an open edition? So there'll be thousands of them, as many as you can ever print. Or is it a closed edition of, of maybe 50? And so one person has one of the 50 that you'll ever produce. And so that obviously will dictate its value. 
But yeah, I think one of the massive things to be aware of is to be consistent. And and that's once you've priced your artwork, you don't want other customers saying, you know, I saw your artwork for this in a gallery. And why is it this on your website? And why is it this that you quoted to so-and-so's friend? Being consistent is so important. And you also don't want to undercut your gallery. So galleries will take a commission. So you need to adjust your what you are taking home based on also your gallery as well. So you don't undercut them as well. But Instagram's also a great place to to compare yourself. What are people selling their artwork for online? You know, where do you sit in the scheme of things and, and what accolades do you have? Competitions as well are a really nice way to once you put your artwork in, in an exhibition or a competition, then you know it sits alongside artworks that have been deemed to be of a similar caliber almost. So then you can compare that way. That's an interesting way to do it too. Yeah, and I think it's also important to note that when you're dealing with some of the sort of um, the most successful artists, sort of like like the Damien Hirst and the Tracy Emmons of the world, then the artwork price becomes, it becomes almost like a stock market. It goes up and down depending on supply and demand curves. It becomes more like uh, stocks and shares than it does about pricing artworks. So that's a sort of world unto itself yeah, slightly that's different. So interesting. I didn't think of it that way, but you're right. Yeah. It it just becomes on where where it's being sold, who's willing to pay for it. I remember someone said to me it was quite um telling that those artists and galleries are sometimes referred to as um blue chip artists and that's because um blue chips are historically the most expensive poker chip. Um, of all the different colours, which goes to show you that there is a, some degree of gambling on those things to see whether that art is going to go up or down in price. When it comes to art and investment, I've always thought it's a strange one because, um, yeah, I think investing in something because you love it is important. And just investing it in sort of like a, a stock or a share that will go up in price always feels like I don't see a point in that. I think you should at least love the work itself. If it goes up in value, hey, that's great news. Um, and what you said earlier resonated with me too when you said about um, living artists because someone there's a famous statement that's always buy from the living artists because the dead ones don't need it mm. the money and that's important that artists need to survive I would also go as far as saying some of the most established artists don't need it either mm. because they've got so much money they're fine every purchase I've made has largely been from emerging artists and I think in my mind, it's an artwork that I love, but it's also me supporting that artist's journey, which is really important to me as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really interesting, especially, you know, you are somebody that buys art very frequently. In fact, if anything, I think you have no wall space left because of all the art you bought. But doing the job you do, it must be very difficult to to know what artwork to buy and what artwork not to buy. And it's true. I buy stuff that I love. I have about 350 artworks in a two-bedroom flat, which uh... is way too many but also i've bought art from artists who i know they're never going to become huge but i love the work i've also bought artworks from artists i think have the potential to become someone really big as well Mm. Uh, but in both cases it's only because i've loved the artwork Mm. it's never been oh i'm buying that because i think they're going to be big but i don't like the artwork Mm. because i feel like every artwork i own should be on display because i love it I should also add there is this bizarre conveyor belt of artwork that I've bought that I haven't collected. There's always some in that section. There's some that I've bought that I haven't framed that are sitting at home. (laughs) And then there's always some that I've bought and are framed, but I haven't yet hung. So So that's always going on. There's always multiple artworks in each category. And it's a real, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's an addiction. I mean, it's not. I mean, it's a better addiction than, say, Class A drugs, but it is an addiction nonetheless. (laughs) It's classy addiction. (laughs) 
and I suppose that the way we want to end on being an artist, I suppose, is this kind of we're now in a fortunate world where there's so much art out there. Yeah. Thanks to galleries, thanks to Instagram, uh, there is so much art, more art than you can possibly look at in an entire lifetime. So the question is, you know, how does that work for being an artist? You often feel like you're in this kind of oversaturated market and how do you stand out? And mm. what is it about you and your artwork that you think makes you stand out from everyone else in their artwork? Yeah, it's a really, really good point. We do have an oversaturation and the more the more art, the merrier, I kind of think. But then it is really, really difficult for people to uh, make a splash, to get noticed. I think one of the most obvious things to talk about is style. You know, is your style niche? Do you have your own style? Is Are you somebody that's kind of trying to do too much with, you know, uh, what what helps an artist stand out is if you have a style and you stick to it. It's, it's you know, like being a recording artist or a fashion brand or an, anything really you want to be known for something oh yeah I saw some really you like oil paintings you like you know impasto oil paintings well there's an artist I know that does that and that is something and it is as limiting as that can be sometimes I think that try and concentrate on one thing and and be known for it and and find your niche in the market you know if you like landscape art but you also really like um collage make that your niche make it make abstract art abstract landscapes collage your your thing but also we talk about being an artist. It's it's no good being the most amazing artist if nobody knows who you are. So branding, marketing is so important. And if you have those two things, then, you know, you're halfway there. I think personally with me, I'm really lucky that I am, as I said, affiliated with a huge gallery group. So, you know, my PR, my marketing is is through there. But branding yourself and your personality as well becomes massively part of your branding, especially when you are on Instagram and you are on TikTok. Really use what you have in your toolbox and your personality to bolster what you do in art, I think. Make sure the two are aligned. Make sure they both say the same thing. What about you? Because you, you must know so many artists that, you know, are, are marketing themselves. And what would you say is a really important technique when you're marketing yourself? I think what you said is really important, which is that there is a famous sort of marketing saying, which is that people don't buy from companies, people buy from people. Mm. And that is so true, even whether it's the artist or whether it's the gallery salesperson who's working at the gallery, it's the connection with the person that convinces you to buy something, not the actual, you know, this is, oh, they, yeah, I bought because it's a company that I value. People don't value companies, people value human interaction. So I think that is really important getting yourself known, getting yourself known out there. And I think it's funny, people think, I think branding makes people feel a little bit allergic to it, isn't it? It's, like, yeah. it's almost like an icky term. Yeah, it does seem... But it's not It's not so, because I think everyone, whether you think you have it or not, you have a brand. Like, you know, if you're that friend who everyone turns to to relationship advice, that is your personal brand, right? Yeah. You are that person <laughs> that everyone goes to. Yeah. So that is, we all have our brands. We just have to manage it if you're in an industry, being an artist or being an art critic, to build around you because essentially you are a self-employed entrepreneur to some degree and therefore it's up to you to sell yourself which sometimes people struggle with because it feels a bit too pushy but I think it can you can find a natural fit that works for you that's on the right level of you know pushing yourself out there and I mean the joke I've always made is that I've got so much presence on the internet it's like I've thrown up all over it you know because that's and that's just by so me putting myself out there fit. yeah just putting myself beautiful out there <laughs> but it's true and and you know you mentioned you know putting yourself out there I think you know that's quite vague but how how would you suggest an artist does put themselves out there and I will then you know 
off the back of that explain or yeah whatever yes and i you know i mean we're talking we're here talking on a podcast and some artists will say to me oh i'd love to be on a podcast and i'm like well do you know any podcast hosts? Do you know people who are going to introduce you to podcast hosts who mm. can put you on? I mean, one artist did that to me. He said they want to be on a podcast, and I put them in touch with a couple of people I know who host podcasts, and one of them featured that artist. So it just worked out that way. Mm. And I think, but obviously it's got to be right for the podcast. If it's not a good fit, you know, you've got to make sure that how you're putting yourself out there fits with who you are. You know, if you're saying... If you're trying to reach a whole bunch of people who only write about landscape artists and then you're a portrait artist, I mean, obviously you're not gonna you're not gonna get very many receptive replies. So yeah. it's important that you pitch yourself accordingly and also what you're comfortable with. I know you said you found a style that works for you, but some artists want to be constant experimenters and that's okay too. It's just mm. you've got to make sure that everyone recognizes who you are. And we always say I always say this to artists all the time, you should have for moments when you meet someone at a busy opening or an event, you should always have that sort of like 30-second pitch of who you are, the elevator yes. pitch as it's called. Yes, that's so important. Yeah, I didn't mention that. You're so right. Going to events, going to galleries, going to exhibitions, exactly. Be ready to sell your art. Have have a have a consistent email and Instagram account and website that all link up, that all match up. These are, you know, these are obvious things, but they make a huge difference, I think. Those were some great tips and great insights into life as an artist. Why don't we end by you saying, what are your favourite and least favourite elements of being an artist? Um, my favourite thing about being an artist is, yeah, I, I get to do what I love for a living and that's pretty awesome. It feels very natural for me to be an artist, so I feel like I'm doing something that is really authentic and I love that. And one of the negatives I would say is that I am an extrovert and I love people and so it can be really lonely sometimes, but that's why moments like this where we get to talk. And my exhibitions are so fun because I just love I love people, I love being around people, I love, you know, interacting with the work with other people and yeah, that's such a joy. Thank you everyone for listening to The Good, The Bad and The Arty and we hope that you will join us for future episodes. If you like this episode, make sure you like and subscribe and share it with anyone who may be interested. And if you'd like to contact Tab or myself, you can get in touch on Instagram. My handle is at Anna Gammons Art. And mine is at London Art Critic. 